Hello and welcome to the Hoff Podcast. I'm Daniel Turner, the pastor of the Tyler House of Faith. We take these messages from our weekly services and then release them here on our podcast channel for you. We hope you dig it. So I read some things this week that I, I really enjoyed. I kind of had a thought of where I wanted to go with the message. And, um, but then I had another thought of something I just wanted to look into. And when I read this story, it's something I've read before probably several times. I feel like I've lived through this story multiple times. But I saw stuff in it that was so brilliant and so incredible. And I, I'm just amazed at how, you know, 2,500 years ago or whatever it was, this story about that, that time frame has so much um, intelligence in it. And it's the story of one of King David's sons. Um, but just the, the ability to look into it, and sometimes like we talk about like sitting on a story. Even as in, in the tabernacle, when the priest would, would step into that tent, there was no natural light in there. It was completely dark, except for the menorah, that seven candlestick menorah, which he would light on one side of the room, and then on the other side of the room was what was known as the showbread. Now, we know as Christians that all this was symbolic for us, that the only way for the priest to eat of that bread was by the light of that menorah. We also know as Christians that this was a shadow of things to come, right, as it says in Hebrews, and it was a prophetic picture for us. This, this tent, this temple was actually a prophetic picture of New, New Testament Christianity, what it means and looks like for us to walk by the Spirit and in the Spirit, to be those go-betweens of heaven and earth that Tyler was talking about, that Laurel and the team was singing about, that, that reality of Eden back on earth, just as the Jews believed that, that the temple was the only place where earth and heaven touched and only the priests were allowed to go in there, it was something for us to see of this way we're called to live. The angels sewn into the fabric of the walls of the temple. You know, the different types of beings when Solomon remade the temple of, of beings, angelic beings that had lion faces and man's faces on one side. You know, all these really cool mystical things was for us to see something. But that sevenfold stick, that seven stick, that menorah, representative of, you know, like if you read Revelation, how it says the seven, you know, yet I have the seven spirits of God, Jesus said, the sevenfold spirit, representative of the Holy Spirit. That was prophesied in Isaiah 11, verse 2 and 3, that the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him, the very person of God. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These seven, the seven eyes on the stone in the book of Zechariah. It was all this prophetic picture of the Messiah having the fullness of God's Spirit upon him. But not only having it upon him, him living and dying in such a way to break forth this new covenant over the world where we would inherit the same reality. And we would learn to live by the Spirit. Doesn't mean we have seven eyeballs, you know, but, it, but, it, in a, but it's prophetic for us to see like this, the lighting of those seven sticks in the temple in order to see the showbread. It was like you can see things in the Bible by the Spirit of God that, it, that unlocks another level of intelligence, heavenly, under, heavenly intelligence, heavenly knowledge and wisdom, which were two of the Spirit names in Isaiah 11, in order to extract things from the Scripture that are so incredibly um, valuable for us in the here and now. And you think you can read a book from two, two to 3,000 years ago, and like it would actually teach you something. It's like, no, they're practically, we think, oh, they're practically cavemen. They didn't have iPhones. You know what I mean? But it's just not the case, you know. 
And especially when God has breathed the scriptures and he's, and he's orchestrated them. And then the, the authors, the ones who've written these historic stories down, there's so much in there for us to learn and glean from. And so I was reading this story and I was like, well, it's not, I don't know if it's necessarily applicable for our, our church in the, in the moment. I'm just really digging it. But the more I read it, the more stuff would come out to me. I was like, I've got to teach this this week. I've never done this story. And that's what I love to do, you know. And I always want to bring the word of the Lord. But the more I read, I was like, man, this is a word of the Lord. I think this is valuable for our house. Because it is about, I will say that it is about the value and importance of, of true relational connection and wholeness of which God has called his people to walk in. They will know us by our love for one another. The things that Jesus said. You know, all, all the stuff about the unity of the body and, and wholeness and, 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 and relational connection that is not severed through offenses and pains and all these other things that sometimes come in. And the story, um, as we get into it, I was just thinking about, you know, this church is it's really such a grassroots church. You know what I mean? It's like, for forever for several years in the beginning it was even just so small that the church is literally like a family and it's always been that way and people come in and out of it and i don't think they fully grasp like this isn't like my organization you know what i'm saying you know the talking head and everyone supports his vision and you kind of come and do your programs and stuff it's like there's something different because it's really like a family but over the past several years we've grown to the place where it's like it's not the way it used to be to where everyone just knows everyone really well. You know what I mean? Which is why I love what, you know, between Yitza and Taylor and these guys that have come in and, and helped us to implement the life groups. And we've got four life groups that are like actually really kind of too large. There are like 30 people in each one, you know what I mean? And it's just like, so we're probably going to have to call an audible in the next few months. Who knows? But, um, but it's like people are starting to get to know each other on that family re relational connected basis again even as we've grown, and it's really kind of cool to see. But I know that's God's heart. And so the story of this, this man named Absalom, this, this son of David, um, is, I think it is a story of the things that have come into somebody's heart, and it severs people's relational connections. And it's funny, it's a, you know, in the charismatic world, the past, well, it was really like in the 90s, there's a lot of books written about it, and the Jezebel spirit became the big catchphrase, you know what I mean? It became a big deal. Now it's, you know, now people talk about it real big now and stuff, but it's like, poor girls, you know, it usually gets stuck on them because it's a girl's name. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, watch out for them Jezebels, you know what I mean? All that, um, you know, witchhunt.com. Um, but as I was looking through the story of Absalom, I was like, dang, this is, this is like, this is pre-Jezebel, Jezebel on, on steroids. This is Jezebel's mama, daddy. You know what I mean? The way this dude operated. And I thought, wow, this is so interesting the way this type of behavior came to try to poison the kingdom and divide it and do the, the absolute opposite which of God's heart, which was totally um, you know, perfect unity and love for his people. And so, as we say sometimes when we read some of these Old Testament stories, you know, you have the verses in like 1 Corinthians 10 and, and, and Romans 15 says it as well, that these things were written for us, yeah. upon whom the end of the ages come, you know, the kingdom age, the, they were written for us to actually learn from, because they're parabolic. Not that they weren't literal and real, yeah, but it's like, but there's so much we can glean from them. When we have that candlestick lit up in the house, we can see the bread that we're eating. 
we can process it right, you know. And so if you want to ride with me through this, maybe in a sense watch this story like a movie, the main character is Absalom, you know. It's the main character is David and it's also Absalom, but that's, this guy, he was known as like the most handsome man in all of the nation of Israel. And if you know, there's some pretty people over there. So this is like, I don't know, I was trying to tell Nicole, I was trying to compare him, I was like, he probably looks like Ronaldo. Anybody know who that guy is? We got statues of Ronaldo, that professional soccer player. I see a couple smile. Like, yeah, yeah, he probably looked like that. Chiseled up, you know, jawline. Or like some Johnny, Johnny Depp, like in the, in the 90s, in the 80s, you know. 21 Jump Street, Johnny Depp, anybody my age? It's, that's, that's what Absalom looked like. He had long hair, so that's probably more Absalom. So let's picture him that way, you know. Just like it says he didn't have a, a blemish from head to, head to the bottom of the soles of his feet. Just handsome. Just super good looking, you know. This is after the happenings of David where he committed murder, you know, in order to steal Uriah's wife and um, had a baby and then, and then the baby ended up passing away. But then he has another baby and it's Jedediah, which is Solomon's true name. And so all this has happened. And, um, but he has this other son who's older than, Jedediah, older than Solomon and he's just super handsome. But as it was in those days, as these people were not the same as us, right? You know, they were, but they weren't. They weren't in this covenant. They didn't have the Spirit of God. Even the prophets had the Spirit of God come upon them, right? We talk about Isaiah 59. God talking to Isaiah like, hey, the Spirit that's on you, it's going to be in your descendants from this time forever, and it's not even going to depart from their mouth. My words will always be in their mouth. Like, there's something new coming, right? And so... Um, these people are not, you know, these people, you know, David has wives and girlfriends and it's all somehow okay. You know, something we see that's like, oh, that's crooked. How's this happen? You know, but this was the culture and this is the side of the covenant they were living on in a very depraved way, if you, if you think about it. But um, so David has an incredible amount of kids, sons and daughters, and um, he's a handsome fellow too. So they're probably all good looking kids or whatever. But um, in 2 Samuel 13, um, the story starts off with Absalom having a sister named Tamar. And, um, but another one of David's sons, Ammon, the son of David, was like in love with her. So I believe it was Absalom's full-blooded sister, but it was Amnon's half-sister. And it's hard to see, but when you look through the, through the text and look through the commentaries and stuff, there seems to be somewhat of an allowance at times for intermarriage in the royal houses back then for people that weren't fully siblings or whatever. I know we all think that's, that's just yucky. Um, and I mean, it is. But uh, there looked like there may have been provision there. It's kind of hard to, to see when you're looking at history. But he had a crush on his sister. You know, it's just ridiculous, right? Half-sister. Um, apparently she was really pretty. So he makes some big deal up about being sick and, and having her wait on him. And, and if you've read first, uh, 2 Samuel 13, he ends up, you know, raping his, own, his sister. And she's like, please, don't do this. What's wrong with you? At least talk to the king, and maybe he'll give you the, the go-ahead to do it the right way through marriage. But, like, this, is, this isn't cool. But he was so poisoned and madly about this girl, crazed over this woman, he ended up raping her. And as soon as he did, he started to hate her. So is anybody, and he threw her out of the house, and she was sackcloth and ashes. And um, so that's the, that's the character of 
Amnon. Does anybody like Amnon so far in the story? Yeah, nobody does. See, this is why I always loved Absalom until I saw, you know, I was like, well, of course, he's the good guy. And he looks like Johnny Depp and he's like, you know, 21 Jump Street Johnny Depp. And so I'm like, this isn't, this isn't right. And um, so anyhow, Absalom comes to his sister. What happened? He finds out about it. And instead of just throwing her out, he's like, you can live at my house, which I'm sure he had a big prince's estate because he had all kinds of servants and people that worked for him. And so he takes his sister in, but he waits for a couple of years, waits for a few years. And in his heart, he's thinking about his brother. Uh, I'm, I reckon I'm about to kill you. You know what I mean? That's what he's thinking about him, but he's kind of keeping it low. But he stages something where he invites all of his brothers out to a certain place and property, and he invites his dad, King David. And David's like, no, I can't do that. I'm not going. And he's like, well, please let Amnon come with us at least. He's like, why? He's like, I want him out there. He's like, all right, sure. He basically stages this big manipulation a few years later. So he just stewed. He just stewed upon that rage. And when Amnon comes out, he gets everybody settled. And... Um, he tells his crew, you know, Absalom has, you know, all, all these men that are with him or work for him or whatever. And he says, hey, when Amnon's heart, when he's drunk, basically, when his heart's merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike him, then strike him. And so he stages this massive attack of his, of his people to kill his brother. And when it happens, all the other princes are like, what's going on? They don't even know that it's really Absalom. It's like he's just men. It's just like there's a fight that's broken out. They're probably all drinking. They scatter. It's this terrible thing. It gets back to the king. The king's heart is completely broke. Amnon, my boy, my little buddy, has been taken out. But the reality is, is Absalom done staged the whole thing and took the dude out. And so when I'm reading that, I'm a father of two girls, and there's a smile on my heart like, way to go, Johnny Absalom. You know what I mean? Like you got, he got what was coming to him. You know, that's just the, the, the carnal mind. Um, although he, he, he took the justice and judgment into his own hands and he murdered somebody um, where there needed to be accountable, accountability. He needed to be held accountable. He needed to be exposed. He needed a lot of things, but you know, murder's not the way. And I understand as parents, a lot of times we're like, well, there's, there's one justification of murder, and that was the one, you know what I mean? Um, so, but, uh, you know, Absalom flees, and, and, and I remember reading this story, and like, in my heart, like, he's the only one of the brothers that had enough guts to actually do what was right. Like, way to go, you know? So he, he literally leaves town, he flees, and he goes to Geshur, stays with another king, and uh, he stays there for three years, right? Now, Joab's one of um, David's mighty men, and he's like a captain of, his, of the military. He's a really bad dude. But there's, it's interesting the way this story starts to take shape. In chapter 14, Joab steps into the scene, right? And what Joab does, it's like he knows that David is broken over Absalom. So you can see kind of reading in between the lines, it says he perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom and that he missed him. I think that's the way it says in the ESV. And so he had had time to mourn over his son, but I think even he knew logically like, well, he raped his full-blooded sister and he just was not willing to let that go. Um, I think he could see it. He did something like a scoundrel would do, you know, and Absalom took him out. And he's my son, so his heart was really torn. 
But after three years, it seems like his heart wasn't mourning anymore of his son. It was more mourning Absalom, you know. But it's interesting because Joab, he does something that I never saw this before. He does something that's also highly manipulative, knowing that David had some wounds in his heart. And Joab literally goes and he finds, he sent to Tekoa and, and brought forth a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on a mourning apparel and don't anoint yourself. He basically stages this thing where people would come before the king and literally asking for disputes or for justice or whatever they were asking for. And he basically hires an actress who's a woman that's known as a wise woman. And he like actually sends her in to, to stage something and to claim that she's a widow and that her sons got into a fight and nobody was there to break them up. So one of them ended up killing one another. He, he killed them because nobody stopped them. And, then, and now there's this, there's this hit out on his head because you, know, you have to avenge the blood of the other. And so now he's you know, got the death penalty on him because whoever sees him wants to kill him. And, um, but it's like, but it's my only son. So it's all a lie and a manipulation that Joab's like cooked up for some reason, right? And he cooks this up and gets this actress to come in before David and David's heart is moved. Like, I get it. There's two sons. It was a bad deal, but he doesn't have to die. And it would hurt your heart as a parent so much if he died. She, he, she literally appeals by the story that Joab get, gets her. He gets her to appeal to his heart, to the very conflict that he's doing with. And that, man, is such a key factor of manipulative behavior. Manipulative wounded people that manipulate for control and attention, they will literally go and they will find an offense with somebody else and become like a chameleon professing to have a similar offense in order for that person to justify what they are in. You catch what I'm throwing? Did I say that too, too fast? It's like, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, thank you. It's, it's, like, it's like they found a wound in somebody else's heart and I want to appeal to that wound by pretending to have it myself so that we can draw a connection between us and have power over the king. And that's what, that's what he did. You know, and I, I won't continue to do that. You guys are probably all smarter than me and probably got that, but that's the good thing about the podcast. People just rewind that, but um, if they need. But it's like, it's interesting. He hires this lady, and when he says, he finally is like, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son's head will be harmed. This is, this is like coming from the top. But as soon as she gets that pronunciation, she goes, well, then why, why then have you schemed such thing against the people of God? And she starts using accusation against David as if he's done something wrong. Why have you schemed against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who's guilty. In that thing, the king doesn't bring his own son who's banished home again. And it's like, oh. So she instantly pulls out the manipulative card. Like, oh, is that what it is? Because... Why, why are you sinning against the people of God? And here's the thing. As far as the banishment of David, Absalom ran away, right? He didn't get banished. But there's a projection, there's an accusation, there's a lie against the king that he's done something. Because if you, if you, if you fall into that accusation, you'll actually work to make something right that you didn't make wrong. It's being controlled. You feel that? 
You catch that, you know? Everybody's real quiet in here today. You know what I mean? It makes a lot of sense to me. But I don't know if I'm communicating that very well. I feel like I am. You, catch, you know, that's the way, that's what accusation is manipulation. You know, it gets you to write something that you didn't wrong. You know, it's the definition of insanity, biblically anyways. Like, eat this fruit and then you'll be like God. He accuses God of holding something accuses God of holding something back from his kids, but then gets them to work for something that they already had the whole time. You know what I mean? Why have you sinned against God and all these things and you've banished your son? Like, I haven't banished, you know? It's like, what? It's yucky, man. But it's through the whole story. Hmm. So finally, David catches on to it and he basically says, hey, did, have you talked to Joab about this? <laughs> which Joab is one of the king's counselors, he's one of the mighty men, but he's also a good friend of his. And he starts to get hip to the fact like, hey, I've confided stuff in you, and you're working me a little bit. You're getting me a little bit. This is gossip. And he knows this hole's in my heart. Have you, have you, has he set this up? And this is where I'm thinking like, here goes Joab's head, it's about to roll. But it doesn't. She says, yes. Everything I just said is from Joab. The whole story is from Joab. She like throws him straight under the bus. Like, absolutely, this is all from him. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, he, says, he says, fine. Bring him back to Jer- Jerusalem. Like, let him back. Da, 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 da. Joab hits the ground. He's crying. You know. All right, I've granted this thing. Go, go bring the young man back. Bring back Absalom. Joab falls to the ground on his face. And he's, uh, you know, bowing himself. And it actually works. But you also see, if you rewind the end of the story, Absalom's going to try to kill David. He's going to try to kill his dad. He's going to try to take the whole kingdom. He actually really comes close, incredibly close, to wrecking the whole thing. And, um, but all these instances are places where, where through relationship, David could have put the axe right to the tree. It would have never grown. That little worm would never have grown to that big snake, to that big python, and into that flying dragon. It would have never had a chance to become the monster it became. It could have been cut off so early through all the manipulation. But he wouldn't put his, he didn't, he, he couldn't recognize it because his head was too spun around. Isn't that wild? I think so. See, I'm reading this during the week and I'm just enjoying it. I'm like, whoa, man, this is so thick. There's so much, there's so much understanding for us just as people, as humans. We have so many people that own businesses and stuff through the church and that listen to the podcast and ministers. And, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's so many applications that we can see this with our team, with our family, with our spouse, our relationships, the way we communicate with one another. You know what I mean? It's just, there's it's so much there. Let him return to his own house. But do not let him see my face. We're not coming face to face, but, I, but I'll restore him. It's like he's, he's, David is conflicted. He killed my son. I don't know what's right. It's like, fine, bring him back to the, bring him back. So it says, now Absalom dwells another two years in Jerusalem, but he never sees the king's face. So Absalom's there. He has a large house, probably. He definitely has property, land. Um, But he doesn't see the king. And here again, Absalom, he's really got dad issues. He's really wounded by this thing. And um, he's there for two years. So Absalom does pulls the next level of manipulation he tries to communicate to joab he's like well joab's kind of worked for me before 
So he starts trying to, trying to send out to Joab and send him a message to actually get him, to get him before the king. Because Joab's like, he's really tight with David. He's a commander, he's a mighty man, but he's also a very close friend to him. He's been with him through a lot, through the Saul years and all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, Joab's like, yo, he's calling him, not necessarily on the phone, but he's sending a message like, yo, come to me, come to me, come to me. And by this time, Joab's like, that last shenanigans I played just to get you back here, you know what I mean, working for you, could have cost me my life, you know what I mean? He's like, he's like I'm not messing with you. You got your land back, you're back here in the kingdom, you probably got all these things going on, you know, I'm out. And so he, he calls to him multiple times and he never actually comes. <clears throat> so then Absalom says to his servants, <laughs> I think this is hilarious, hey, look, guys, Job's field is actually near mine and he's growing a lot of barley. So why don't we go? I want you guys to go and set it all on fire. In other words, that'll, that'll make him come talk to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? We'll go trash his field. <laughs> what a wild dude, man. What a wild, handsome dude. So he sends his servants to go set the field on fire. You know, he absolutely, then Joab finally comes to his house. Like, what, if, what are you doing? Why have you set my field on fire? Because there's nothing he can do. That's the king's son. You can't go beat him, stab him, kill him. You can't, there's nothing he can do to him. You can't intimidate him. He was just ignoring him because he didn't want to be used by him. Joab, and, and Absalom answered Joab, look, I've sent you telling me to come so that I can send you to the kings and, and, and say, why have I come home from Geshur? It'd be better for me to, be, to still be there. Let me see the king's face. But if there's iniquity in me, then let him execute me. Which I believe Joab knew that his dad would never do. I think he was very confident in that. But it's like, hey, it's, it's not good enough for me just to be a prince here. He was scheming something higher in his status, in his, his ambition. So finally it says Joab goes to the king and tells him, hey, look. <clears throat> he tells him what happened. And it says the king called Absalom and he came to the king and he bowed, his, um, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And David got up and came over to him and kissed him like any dad would do to his son. You know what I'm saying? He knew it was in his heart the whole time. David's a good guy. So he saw Absalom, came and grabbed him, gave him a kiss. You know what I'm saying? Like, and the kiss to them was like a full restoration of all things. It was like, you're fully pardoned. You're fully accepted. Like that, that's what that is. That's like when Joseph, when his brothers threw him in a dang pit and he lived in a dungeon and all that stuff. And then he was up there next to Pharaoh and his brothers were coming, like asking for food. And he was pretending he didn't know him for a while. And he said, I'm Joseph. And they're like, oh, snap, we're all going to be killed because we trashed this guy's life. But Joseph goes up on them and he hugs them and he kisses them. And the kiss was like, it's, it's, all, it's in that culture, it was like, it's, hey, it's, it's, it's all a wash. It's, we're good, you know. And so Absalom got what he, what he wanted. But here's when Absalom, this is, this is great after those two years. So he gets the restoration to the king. But the first thing that he does in the next chapter, chapter 15, Cliff Notes version, is he provides for himself chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So even as he had roped in Joab and as Joab had roped in the lady from Tekoa and, and had pitched a scene and, and, and made this huge mass manipulation and all these different things. <laughs> That's hilarious, dude. 
Um, Absalom, what he would do, he's hired all these people to be around him. And he would rise early and stand in the way of the gate. So it was when anyone who had a, had a lawsuit or was coming for a decision for the king, you know, just like that woman did, uh, you know, in a, in a crooked way, Absalom would intercept people before they could actually go to David. So he was like, he was the cutoff man to keep people from connecting to the king. Now there's all kind of symbolism there, whether it's religion itself and the, and the booth that the priest sits in. Uh, you talk to me about it and I'll talk to him about it type of thing, that kind of trash. Or if it's just like literally people that are keeping, they're exalting themselves to be like God and using their revelation or their knowledge or understanding to draw people to themselves instead of actually using their gifts to impart, draw people to God, you know, impart them. And so Absalom would rise up in the morning and he would come, anybody that had an Absalom, anybody that had a beef, anybody that had, anybody that had a problem, you know, Anybody that had an issue. And it, and it's, it says he, he would say when they would get there, um, he would start to question them. When anyone would come for a decision, he would say, what city are you from? And they'd say, your servant's from such and such. And so he would start by questioning them as if he would just act like he was in the position at the gate the way the elders would have been. And act like he was the judge appointed by the king, which the king was. And he would start by actually controlling them and like just funneling them just pretending like he worked there so he assumed a position he was never given his dad has no clue that he's doing this or if he ends up finding out that he's out there doing something he doesn't really like what's he doing like okay whatever he's doing his king stuff you know what i mean he has peace and so he's propped himself up in this leadership role acting as if he's somebody that he's not and he's drawing people in asking them questions on their way to the king and it's funny, I was telling somebody, uh, James, yesterday, because I was telling him, when I, when I did sales training, you know, golly, 10, maybe 15 years ago, 12, so, one of the things about sales that they would teach you to do was to always be the one asking questions. Because the person asking them the question in sales is the one who's in control. And you have to have control of the client so that you can sell them whatever you want. So you ask them questions and you get them answering you because you're leading them. And then you start to ask them yes questions and then you start getting them to agree with you and agree with you. And then you start making your sales and pitches and they go with it, right? Is that not disgusting? Yeah, it's manipulation and Absalom's playing that game. And um, you know, I had a guy, golly, he used to do that to me. He would call me up, I'm working. He's like, so you, you think trucks are valuable, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think that they da 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 well, yeah, I do. And, and I would know, like, dude, don't rope me into asking questions, getting me to say yes. This is so annoying to me. It wears me out. But, uh, yeah, and he went to this church, actually. So, yo, he still does. No, I'm just kidding. He does. <laughs> A long time ago. And it's just like, okay, buddy, leave me alone. I'm not buying. Anyway, so, yeah, and I, yeah, I did not operate that way in those days either. But, anyhow, he would do that stuff, but he would flatter the people. As soon, no matter what their grievance was with their neighbor, with their land, with their property, it says in verse 3 of 2 Samuel 15, Absalom would, would pronounce that your case is good and it is right. He would instantly side with whatever grievance was coming to him at that gate. And um, instantly side with them. He would use flattery to corrupt them. And he would actually um, get them on his side because he was drawing them to himself. By doing that, he was actually trying to separate them from the king. You know? And it's, it's, it's so corrupt. 
But even as Joab knew the wounds that were in the heart of the king, and even some of the questions that the king was wrestling with about his own son, and then pitched a scene in order to associate those things with the king and then accuse the king with them, um, Absalom here is, is doing something very similar. He's painting a picture, you know, and he's coming in as, as like an agreer that's like, you know what? It's right that you're offended about that. It's good and right. You no, know, it's okay. You know, and, and it's like you see that kind of stuff work in Christian bodies and stuff like that. Hey, it's okay. I know we're not supposed to let unwholesome words come out of our mouths. We're not supposed to talk, but we're just processing things here. So tell me about Joe and what he's done you wrong. You know what? I can see that. He's done that to me one time. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a complete perversion of the way that relationship goes in the kingdom. You know? There's stuff, you know, all through, all through the scriptures. You know? If, if, that literally talks about if somebody actually sins against you, you actually go to the person. You address them straight up. You make it right. It even says in Matthew 5, like, if you go to the altar and you recognize they're offering your gift before God, it's symbolic, but there you remember that your brother has something against you. Not something fake, but actually something real. Like, you realize you've wronged him. It's like, go make that right first. And then come and actually offer your gift to the altar, which is such a beautiful thing because God's not like you're disqualified because you're not loving your brother. He's saying like, I don't even, your gifts to the altar, your worship, whatever that is, it's not nearly as important to me as you being right with your brother or sister, the unity and the love, because he's called us to be this Lord's prayer, a family, father in heaven, hallowed be your name, separate be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it in heaven. This, the, the, the church, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But there's a gateway of hell which is offense and bitterness and, and negativity and, and, and wherever there's severance between people that the Lord wants completely shut in his house. You catch that? He doesn't like it. You know. And it's not that because he wants to disqualify somebody. It's because like, Hey, when you operate in this, it opens the doors for other things in your life. Make it right first. Amen. You know, where two or more are gathered in my name, like in agreement and in unity, there I am amongst them. Yeah. What did he say about the keys to the, uh, on this rock? I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail. I've given you the keys to the kingdom. That which you bind will be on the earth is, is that which is bound in heaven. That which is loose in earth, on heaven is that which you loose on the earth. Like you have the ability to come into agreement with one another in this way, in the will of God, that his kingdom would come in. But all this relational severance that's rooted in daddy issues, because that's what Absalom had, and seeing God as a way that he's not, it's like this has to be purged from the body, from my people. That's what this whole story is about, you know. Yeah. Thank you, Vincent. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's just, it's incredible. And so here he is, your case is good and right, you know. Um, flat, you know, he flatters them. There's so much. If you just type the word flatter into your Bible search, you know, Psalm, Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. It's just another way of manipulating people. It seems like encouragement, which is the essence of prophetic ministry, but it is not. It is encouragement with an agenda to control and steer people. You know, it's not rooted in truth or in love. Daniel eleven thirty two talking about the, the enemy and the 
the last day enemy. It's like he corrupts with flattery. That's the way the enemy works it. So here Absalom is um, playing this game, becoming a chameleon, taking on people's offenses, even though they weren't his. It might be two people disputing over a land or whatever. Your claims are good and they're right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. So I'm stepping in that position. And it's just like, yo, the, let them go to the king. You know what I'm saying? He made it seem as if the king doesn't do his job. He's not available. But he actually severed the connection before people even got to be rejected by the king, which they would not be, because he felt rejected by the king, his dad and his dad issues. I feel like this is like a sword that's just cutting through stuff right now to me, but you guys are nice and quiet, but I like it, so you know, I'm just going to say. I don't know, it's just, it's so meaty. It's so cool, it's just like, man. He's like, the king, but, but I'm here to, like, I'm a safe place. I'm a safe place for you to come express your grievances and express all your dis... Oh, you know what I'm saying? But like true relationship in the body, the Christian way, somebody comes to me about Alan and Christopher, complete example because they're my homies and they're, they're on the music team together. But if one of them said, I'd be like, okay, cool. But before you come to me, which I actually am a leader over the organization, so it's okay to come to me, but it's like, but before you do, have you addressed it with Alan? You know, you catch that? And it's like, oh, it's more important for y'all to iron this out and, and get it right than it is for me. Then if it happens and, you can't, and, it, and y'all can't come to it, whatever, I'll come help mediate and I'll come help walk you through it so that your relationship is, is connected and y'all are brothers that you, they actually are. You, you, you feel me? You know, it's a different, it's a different process. If, you know, if somebody sins, go to them and tell them. Make it right. If he doesn't hear you, take some witnesses. Take two or three with you with the goal of like, yo, making it right. That's what the Bible says. It's all about relationship. And it's all relationship to one another and relationship to us. Think about Jesus, man. Think about that, that, you know, Matthew 22, right? What I call the werewolf slayer. Um, It's like that thing is, it really is the wolf, the false teachings and that, that that perverse tongue that divides and devours people. When they're trying to attack Jesus, well, what's the greatest commandment? It's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The upper and lower beam of the, the upper beam of the cross pointing up and down. And what's and what's the second one? Loving your neighbor as yourself. The side beam of the cross that goes side to side. It is the sword that is in Golgotha. It's the werewolf slayer. It really is. And it's like that thing, man. That that cross and that articulation of like, hey, it's all about being right with God and right with other people. It's like, hey, like, we're not even. You know, we love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul and accept His Lord love for us. And we're loving our neighbor just as much as we love our own self. And this is this crucified life that is the cross, which causes resurrection life to come through your life. But all these things and all these manipulations and all this, we call it Jezebel, you know, because he's a Johnny Depp looking boy. You know, we, we think in these really redneck ways that these people were smarter than that a couple thousand years back. And the reality is this is written for us to see like, hey, these are... These are, this is the control of the carnal, natural man to get his needs met. And we can actually repent of them, which, wh- what does that mean? Turn away from them, not use them. These projection, triangulation. You got a problem with him. I got a problem with him. So I'm going to create a problem with him with you so that you have a problem. Then I'll side with you and get you to go to him on my behalf. It's just like, whoa, 
textbook psychology. I'm not Brene Brown, but that's like textbook triangulation. And it's shown in our scriptures, in our Bibles. And it's like, hey, this is the way people operate. And it ends bad. It ends real bad. It really ends bad for Absalom. Kind of ends bad for everybody in this story. Absalom does this for four years, standing at the gate, getting his name up. And I'll let you guys read most of the rest of that, right? Because he, he literally, in, you know, 2 Samuel 15, he, he does this for four years until he's got a lot of people. And then he stages something. He stages basically a coup. And um, let's see here. He provided himself with chariots and horses. Um, after these four years of doing this, being this fake judge, siding with people, flattering people, um, he, he sends message to the king and says, hey, let me go to Hebron and pay, you know, pay the vow that I made to the Lord. It's just so funny. He pulls a God card on his dad to go actually start a coup against his dad. It's like, oh, man, oldest, you know, what's he going to do? And um, your servant took a vow while I was there, you know, if the Lord in- indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, I'll serve the Lord. And, you know, the proud dad, David, oh, man, one of my sons is righteous these days. He's not, not a killer like he was, you know, six years ago, seven years, you know. Go in peace. He, spend, he sends spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, you'll say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he put out a message through all of, through all of Israel to say this thing that people didn't even understand. And so they thought, what is, was, is David making him king? Is David sending him to Hebron to like make him king because he's getting older? Or like, well, I guess so. You know, everybody else is yelling it. No one even knows why they're yelling it. You know? He stages this big whole thing. King gives him his blessing to go. So, he's, he, so he, can, he can come with all the pomp that he wants, with all the people that he wants. And this manipulation that he had done on a very lower level of making himself look like he was in this position, now he's doing it on a real high level because he's trying to take... Just like the, you know, Lucifer, I will, I, will, I will ascend myself like the Most High. Like he's like, oh, I'm, now I'm going to take my shot. And that actual accuser of the brethren is trying to make its role. And um, he sent for Ahithophel, which is one of David's main counselors. And um, the conspiracy drew strong. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts, the hearts of men are with Absalom. And so they, they literally went along with him. And he literally staged, if you want to just read it, he staged this coup of like, it made it look like he was being announced as the king. And it even says like so many of the people, probably thousands of them that were there, didn't even know why they were there. They were just the useful idiots is what it's called. They were just used to, to actually come and look like there was this big majority that all agreed, even though none of it really did. None of the unity was real. And to, and to stage this reality that he was the king. And so everybody went along with it. Not everybody, but a lot of people went along with it. And then when David heard about it, he was so taken back. He so didn't see it coming. So didn't see this big projection coming that he's like sackcloth and ashes. Like, oh my gosh, we got to get out. Of we got to get out because he's coming back and he's going to try to kill me, which was actually true. So David actually leaves Jerusalem Everyone who was loyal with him leaves. They cross the river, you know, they're, you know, Kidron. They're like, they go out into the wilderness. They are being hunted. The whole table's flipped. And I won't go into that. There's a lot of really um, uh, great stories there. There's a, re- there's a lot of really great stuff there, but I don't want to be too much longer. 
Um, the, the end of the story, there's two different counselors. One's loyal to David, one's loyal to Absalom. And, and um, David's counselor actually goes and serves Absalom. And, and he literally tells him, go after David with everything you've got to go kill him. Which I think, like, what? You know, like, so God's counsel to Absalom and all his men was like, yeah, just wipe them out. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like good counsel. But, you know, to God, it's like, yeah, let them throw the whole thing at you and the kitchen sink because it's not a big deal for me. I'm going to wreck these guys because it's not right. And David took the mentality, which I love the, the servant's heart of mentality of David, which honestly, some of it was because of what happened with Bathsheba. So he thought this might also be because of that. And I'm getting taken out. That was in his head, I think. I'm pretty sure, actually. Um, but also said, hey, if this is the Lord, then my position's going to, I'm being removed. But if it's not, then I'm not. And he'll bring me back. So where Absalom is so thirsty for position, for clout, for pull, for position, and all these things, David doesn't see it as something to be worked for in his own strength. He sees it like what Peter wrote. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will be the one that exalts you in due time. Like that devil prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he can devour, trying to one-up, biting people, trying to attack people in order to gain position. But you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he exalts you and positions you in due time. And the position he puts you in can't be removed by a human being, unless it was allowed by God and he has something different for you. So you see two completely different ministerial minds. It's very important for ministry, I think, for anything, any Christian, really. Um, so Absalom takes the advice. The bad counselor that was actually evil told him not to go after David too hard because he's like a dang bear, and all of his guys are like crazed bears. But the, the other counselor was like, no, go after him. Kill him. <laughs> Imagine that, you know. God coming back, don't worry, I gave them, I gave them advice. Well, what'd you tell them to do? I told them to attack you with everything they've got. Like, like, hey, it's not a big deal to me. <laughs> You're going to show them something different. They come to attack David. Obviously, I think many of you know the story if you want to read through 2 Samuel 17. It's, it's fun. It, it's, it's, a, it's a great story, but Absalom ends up riding through the woods when they're chasing David and his men and getting hung by his beautiful Johnny Depp locks in a tree. His hair grew what seems like supernaturally fast um, is the way it describes it in the Bible. And you don't know if that's, you know, how they're saying that because it's debatable, like how many shekels his hair weighed every year, different translations. But his hair would grow really long and it sounds like he would cut it every year. But the story of Absalom, while he, the way he gets done in is when he's still continuing the charade of pursuing that position. This wound that he had to his dad had actually, actually turned to rage of attacking his dad. He, he never desired that connection. He desired his position. It was completely different. It was twisted. And um, he gets caught in his hair in an oak tree. His hair gets tangled up. And the, the crazy thing about it, you know who runs him through with the spear? Joab. The guy that he was always using to dang rope him in to do his manipulations. And, D and David gives a, this is a little extra credit, but David gives a full do not kill him, catch him. So David never even wanted his son to die for, he, I mean, he wrecked his house. He desecrated all David's concubines and girlfriends. He shamed him. He tried to take the whole kingdom, but David's heart was still, I love my boy. 
don't kill him. And um, Joab's like, Joab just didn't care. He saw him hanging there and killed him, which is just, just wild to me. Well, he's, he, he threw three javelins or spears into him. And then I think somebody else cut him down and killed him. But I mean, Joab killed the guy, basically. The very one that was constantly manipulating David to bring him back in. Constantly pitching these things. It's like it was a spiritual thing, a manipulation that was always trying to get its way into the king's uh, domain. To manipulate and steer the kingdom itself. And, and I don't think Joab even was conscious and knew what was really happening. But it was like, hey, it needed to be nipped at the butt and it never did until it became really big. And then the very thing that, that um, Absalom used um, to gain clout with people was all his entangled relationships. Have you ever heard that saying, um, the best thing about telling the truth is you never have to remember what you said? You know? He had so much manipulation. He had so many tentacles, octopus tentacles out through so many people and little side stories and little this and little deals and little siding with him and siding with him. He had so much. And so I, I just think it's interesting prophetically that he gets hung up by his actual hair. He gets so tangled up in the oak tree, which is a tree of life and it, I think it represents family tree. He gets so tangled up in there that he's hung by it. You know? And he's hung out to dry. And then the very one that was in on a lot of the pressure and manipulation to get him back in. I think he, I, I wonder if Joab knew, like, no. The king's heart, he's too easily manipulated by you. He's too in love with you. Like, you're, I'm killing you. I don't care what he says. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I'm going to start it to where you can't live and then they'll kill you. And it won't be on me. Another manipulation. But he had a scene on here, though, there. It's interesting. So what's the point of talking like this? Well, I think the point of um, messages like this, one of it's, it's the Bible, it is the Word of God, and there's life in it when you read it through the lens of the menorah, through that light. And you recognize, um, I had a bunch of different notes about just the, the characteristics of Absalom's manipulation. One, he was the most attractive person, which really symbolized to me, um, they, use, they use all their giftings, the things that they have, by no and really not because of anything that he did, he inherited, um, to attract or impress people and draw them to the self. Um, Joab, the mediator, um, that type of manipulation, they use people or triangulate in order to accomplish their agendas. They, recru they recruit defenders like Absalom did. They use pity and like, oh, poor me, to recruit defenders and protectors that are sympathetic to them that'll go on their behalf. And instead of going to the one you have the issue with, they'll actually go on their own behalf. And, you know, Joab knew that there was a conflict in David's heart and he exploited it. It's weird. It's, it's crazy. I've seen this type of thing happen in so many churches that I've been at. Um, some that I've been at and some that I wasn't at that I was just on the outside of, but they were, you know, the way church splits happen and stuff like that. There's a lot of times stuff like this will actually start to happen. It's like, oh boy, that's, that's yucky, but it's textbook in the Bible. And, and if your stuff really isn't founded on the rock of Jesus, it's like snakes get in through them cracks, man. But I've seen, I've seen grown adult children who are raised in like highly manipulative, abusive families where the, where the parents literally used their kids and manipulated them and almost ruined their lives in order to prop themselves up and to have positions and stuff like that. Um, 
but when their parents would get addressed for that abusive behavior or for just unacceptable behavior, the kids would be the ones that came like lions to defend the parents, the very ones that were abusing them. It was crazy, you know, and you see it all the time. You see it all the time in relationships or abusive relationships, like the, the person getting abused, when, when something finally gets addressed, they become the Mike Tyson fighter to protect their abuser. And it's just because it's like, it's been the, the, those tentacles, it's just like, it's just, it's just the way that thing works, you know? And that's, that's one of those things. And I think there's so many things in this, but I'm just gonna go over them because it's like, I think it's so important. We can all find ourselves in so many different relational situations and stuff. And, and the Bible is so full of understanding and understanding is what brings deliverance. It really is. It's not like, oh, we're going to have a deliverance line and pray for you and you're going to gyrate and, and be free, which I've seen happen. And I think there's sometimes that's real. Um, but I think what's even more commonly real is seeing the truth and being unlocked. That's what that is. And stepping out of it. That's deliverance. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, he had, he had dad issues and he sent for Joab to restore him to his dad, you know. And he wouldn't come, so he sets Joab's field on fire. I still think that's one of the funniest parts of the story. You know what I'm saying? But they start fires. They start fires. And it's really because they want attention. And they're not getting it. You know, that's another, another uh, help, you know. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought that was Marlena's voice. Like, Your voice got deep right there. Like, whoa. <laughs> it's hard to see over there because of the light. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, you know that the flattery, the flattery of manipulation. I'm a safe place. You know, da da da. It's okay to gossip and slander because this is this is okay when a real friend's actually going to point you to the source and talk about, hey man, is there anything you can own? And hey, can you write it with them? Because I think that's what the Lord wants to do in your heart. You know what I'm saying? Flattery being manipulation, triangulation. He got Joab to take on his offense in order to pre- to plead for him. Can you imagine Joab? It's like, man, you, you roped in a dang actor and, and created a whole scene. Wow, dude. Yeah. Yeah. He ended up entangled in his own tree. The point and the answer. God's agenda in all things is restoration and wholeness. And Absalom did get taken out. And David did come back to the kingdom. And honestly, David, like dealing that way and just trusting God, like, hey, if this is really of God, if God's wanting to remove me, then I'll be removed. But if he's not, I'm not going to fight for my position. And David had so many lions around him. He could have ripped the head off of Absalom and a lot of those guys. Of course, he was projected that it was a lot bigger than it really was because it seemed. But the reality was all those crowds and all those people that he drew through all that stuff, it wasn't real. There was a lot there. But they weren't, they weren't heart and soul down to actually fight for his agenda. It just looked that way. So fear caused them to roll. You know. But David had Philistines and stuff that had actually moved to Israel. He killed their giant, their Nephilim you know, leader. And he had Philistines and stuff living in their region were grandfathered in as foreigners because they loved David so much. He won so many people over. And he told them, you guys stay here with Absalom, you know, I'm sure he won't kick you out. And they're like, no, we're going wherever, wherever you go. So here's David with all the authority, with all the power, with all the, the mighty men and warriors around him, but actually being steered like the one who's losing. You know, 
But time played itself out and it wasn't true. It wasn't real. God's agenda is restoration and wholeness. Father in heaven, hallowed be separate, be your name. Your kingdom come onto the earth. Your will be done, settled in the person of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, the manna, the showbread even that's lit. It's the communication of God, the understanding. And also, forgive us because we forgive. Forgive us and we forgive everyone. Forgiveness is such a key in the whole game. And it's because God desires the wholeness of heart. Wholeness to pursue Him and wholeness not to hold any darkness in them. If somebody's wronged, you, you give them the opportunity to make it right. You know, if there's pain, you, you, you forgive and you release and you make it right in God. It's like, this is the kingdom. This is what brings and ushers heaven into the earth. This is what spiritual authority looks like. Forgive us for we forgive. Yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. We're in this reality, this eternal kingdom of power and the glory of God being manifested. This is our purpose. That's what the prayer is about. You know, you know Galatians 6.1, if a man's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, don't go and just talk about it to other people. It's like, go and restore that person. You know, this is us. The older brother of the prodigal story was always working to gain his dad's approval and never realizing that he actually already had it. You know what I mean? Absalom was doing all that he could to try to be accepted by his dad when if he would have just came in the very first place, that kiss would have happened and he would have been restored. And the poison that was stewing in that, that guy's heart for those seven years, it's a different story. Maybe not. Maybe he still goes crazy. Maybe he's like Anakin. Maybe he's just destined to be crazy. I don't know. But I, I mean, that's obviously not because that's not what happened. So, you know. Yeah, that was, yeah. Well, Lord, we thank you that your word is truth and life Indeed. to us. And uh, we do thank you that you desire wholeness in all of us. And Lord, I ask that even as our church body would be so whole in our relationships, that's so healthy in everything that you have for us that we would walk in the ways of the Lord Jesus, that we would walk like, you know, by eating the bread and the words that proceed out of your mouth every single day and walk and in, in, in abiding in the forgiveness, that we would not leave your house, that we would abide like the pillars of your house, staying within that place of authority in order that your kingdom would manifest through us in the earth. Amen.